Don't worry about a thing. Because Atticus Health will make you feel all right. Don't worry about a thing. Because Atticus Health will make you feel all right. If you got a tummy ache, or you don't feel right, or if you have a nasty rash, keeping you up at night, don't worry about a thing. Don't worry. Cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright. I'm Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. Before we get started with tonight's conversation, I want to acknowledge the Bunurong peoples, First Nations custodians of this land, and the Karim Karim Swamp that we have, are broadcasting live from this evening. And this area is a very spatial, ancient place, has been cultivated and cared for for more than 7,000 years. My guest this evening is Rachel Burnstone, a journalist, business development and marketing advisor to architects and an advocate for good design in the wider community. She works with architecture practices, directors and principals to help them develop strategies that are focused on winning new projects and communicating the value of architecture. With a Bachelor of Arts in Journalism from RMIT and a Master of Architecture in History and Theory from UNSW, Rachel helps to demystify the language of architecture for general audiences. She was awarded a Churchill Fellowship in 2003 to study sustainable and affordable housing in four countries. Rachel founded Sounds Like Design in 2016 as a communications consultancy for architects and she combines journalistic research and writing skills with big picture and fine grain industry knowledge to create communications campaigns that promote the value of architecture. Her six-channel system for architecture marketing based on 20 years of experience underpins her consulting work and CPD courses for architects. The system enables architects to define their unique offering, identify their ideal clients, implement client-focused messaging, and track their progress over time. It simplifies modern marketing techniques to help architects focus on building trust and engagement, and ultimately to generate new work and clients, and to expand architecture's market share pie. As an advocate, Rachel compiles a weekly curated newsletter for architects called The Drill, which she also runs campaigns around topical events and themes to advance conversations and stimulate progress around key issues within and outside the profession. As a journalist, Rachel continues to offer her writing through publications, including In Houses, Artichoke, Habitus, in Design, Sanctuary, Australian Design Review, Inside, and Australian House and Garden. Welcome to the program, Rachel. It's so good to have you and to finally talk after you know, quite quite a bit of time, I think, of corresponding online across this, this vast continent. Where are you dialing in from tonight? 
I'm dialing in from Perth, so I'm in Wadjuk country, and I'm really glad to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm, I'm so glad that we can talk. The first question I like to ask all my guests is, what's your earliest memory of a building or place? Ah, that's a good one. I think that it would have to be the house that I grew up in, which was in Melbourne, actually. So I lived in Melbourne from the age of about one until 24. And so for the first roughly 12 years of my life, I lived in Baronia, which probably a lot of listeners will know is in Melbourne's outer east. And my parents bought a house that was fairly new. So it was only one or two years old. It was a very regular brick veneer house, orange bricks. Um, It's opposite a kindergarten where I went as a four-year-old. It was the most ordinary Australian house you can imagine. And I think it's very typical that a lot of us have grown up in houses like that where design wasn't really um, something that was considered. And consequently, we haven't experienced the beauty of good design um, as youngsters to then appreciate it as adults. I think that's one of the reasons that my job exists because we as um, the architecture profession need to do quite a lot of work to explain or um, promote what good design is and how it can benefit people. Oh, absolutely. That's really the whole point of this program ultimately, (laughs) isn't it, to to have these conversations. And I find that people do and listeners are really engaged and they are interested. I wonder how did this interest emerge for you, though, jumping from journalism to Master of Architecture, History and Theory? Yeah, so it's funny. It's only looking back now that I can see a path that was becoming – you know, that was emerging for me. It wasn't something that I deliberately plotted a course and set out to do. Um, You know, I didn't have a grand plan, let's put it that way. So I got into journalism because my friend had applied and I wanted to do law and I didn't get into law and I'd put journalism on my application and we both got in, which was pretty fortunate because if I had and she didn't, we might have had a problem. But we both got in. I still, at the end of first year, was considering switching to law, but again, I didn't get into law. So the universe was telling me quite clearly to just stick with journalism, which is what I decided to do. When I finished that in 1993, um, we were in the recession we had to have, and I couldn't get a job as a journalist in Melbourne. I did try lots of things. I went for an interview at the newspaper at Bacchus Marsh, and I would have happily moved to Bacchus Marsh had I gotten that job, but I didn't. And so the year after I finished that course, I had an opportunity to go with a girlfriend to the UK and I had a British passport and it just seemed like a no-brainer to, you know, go with her and see what I could find there. And I had very much the intention of trying to get a job as a journalist in London. Well, even that didn't work out. I got a job in marketing quite by accident instead. I came back to Australia after four years. I'd worked at Fox in London and I came and worked at Fox Studios in Australia, still in marketing. And then when I was 30 and living in Sydney, I said, you know what, I'm going to have one last ditch attempt at becoming a journalist. And I got a job on a magazine called Ben and Ben stood for Broadcast Engineering News. (laughs) And it was probably one of the most boring topics I could have been tasked with writing about. And it didn't have any intrinsic interest for me at all, but it was a great place for me to learn the ropes of journalism. And in the course of working there, I just had a chance meeting with Davina Jackson, who was editing Architecture Australia at the time. 
a friend of mine was an architect and she'd come to Sydney to um, judge a competition and she invited me to go along with her and I met Davina and Davina said, oh, yes, I've got an architecture degree and I thought she meant the five-year course and I went home and looked in a book that she'd recently authored and it said that she'd done this Masters in Architecture, History and Theory and so I looked it up on the University of New South Wales website and saw that it was a two-year part-time course and that it wasn't a prerequisite to have an undergrad in architecture and I thought, hmm, if she can do it, I can do it. So I got in touch with them, I think literally the next day and said, I want to do this course that Davina did. And they said, sure, here you go, sign up. So I did. Epic. And so I did that course and that was a very steep learning curve because most of, well, everyone else who was doing the course had an undergraduate degree in architecture. So they had three years of knowledge, you know, ahead of me. And I found it so difficult to wrap my head around the concepts that we were being taught and definitions and the jargon and the, you know. I uh, the archi-speak? Yes, the archi-speak. And I didn't have the um, the practical knowledge about how to put a building together. And that's not what the course was centred around. It was centred around history and theory. So it was very much a way for me to get a degree in architecture appreciation, if you like. But because I was coming from this position of having so little knowledge to start with, I really was on the back foot and it was it was really hard. It was like if you go to Florence to learn English and you think it's going to be all, you know, <laughs> ham and crusty bread and walking around speaking Italian and it wasn't like that at all. I, I struggled and it was through that struggle and through what I learned in that process, I had to unlearn a lot of what I thought I knew about architecture to be able to replace it with actual knowledge and that sort of planted the seeds for me to think about how can I help architects become more accessible to the people they serve because at the moment a lot of the ways that architects talk about their work and the contri- the contributions they're making, a lot of it comes across as quite impenetrable. Mm, mm, absolutely. And so even from that very early point, I had a pretty clear intention to try and help break down some of those barriers and demystify the language. And as a journalist, you know, we are tasked with, making something complex and, um, you know, vast into a bite-sized digestible piece of writing or, you know, radio show. And that was something that I already had skills in. So I started to see myself as a bridge between architects and the public in the, in the sense of being able to craft narratives or stories that could help those, um, you know, nuances and important messages that architects wanted to convey to to land better with the people who might be interested in hearing them. That's so, so important. I'm really curious, what are some of these misconceptions that you had to unlearn? Ah, that's a good question. So when I was a kid, my dad used to take me to National Trust properties and, you know, historic houses in Melbourne. And this was back in the day when there was no, no Sunday trading. So on the weekend, you had Saturday morning to quickly run around and do all your errands. And then you had all of Saturday afternoon and all of Sunday to find something to do. And my parents had a book called Things to Do in Melbourne on Sundays. <laughs> and so we used to go on these outings. And we I remember distinctly going to places like Rip and Lee and Como and Montsalvat and even um, my dad my dad told me much later that he was a budding architect. He never qualified in architecture, but he had a drafts board in the shed and he was going to build a house for us. So that was something that was sort of going on in the background of my childhood. But we were also going to these places and 
from my experience of being in those historic houses and usually, you know, big fancy houses with grand rooms and high ceilings and, you know, servants' quarters and stuff like that, I very much came away from that with this sense that architecture was about the fabric of buildings or the material. So it was about walls and floors and roofs and windows and how those things fitted together and perhaps a little bit to do with how they connected with the outdoors. But what I very quickly came to understand by studying theory in this course was that that's not what architecture is about. Architecture is about space and light and connection and you know, Vitruvian principles and, and all these sorts of things. Ideas. That you learn. Yes. And so that was the steep learning curve for me. I remember one of the lecturers gave us a task in that course to talk about um, a, a text from the 1850s and it was about the hearth and how the hearth was at the centre of the home. And I just remember feeling completely bamboozled by this thing that we were given to read and I couldn't understand what it was I was meant to draw or extract from this and and how I was then meant to apply that to modern day thinking. It, it just was so beyond my realm of what I had known about buildings. And so that's the reason that I found it really challenging. And I think that architects, all architects go through that process of unlearning what they thought they knew or what they came into university with. And through the process of studios and crits and other types of classes they build up you know layers and layers of new knowledge and I think sometimes they forget that they've got five years of knowledge accretion that is very different to what the public know and understand about architecture and they assume that the public might have their same level of understanding or familiarity with terms and that's really not the case. No, certainly not. And the public also have their own misconceptions that they come into every meeting and conversation with as well. No, yeah, no, so, nobody has a I, clean slate. No, and everybody brings their own experience, don't they? So, you know, if you grew up in an architect designed house and a lot of architects have come into the profession because their parents were architects or because they'd had a level of exposure to architecture. But if you've come into the profession having never met an architect but you were just inspired by something that, you know, you came across in high school or somebody told you that it was a good combination of drawing and science or, you know, for whatever reason, if you come into it cold like that, you're going to have a different experience and a different set of sort of lenses, I suppose, that you're looking at the world through to a person who's had a lot of exposure, you know, to buildings and places and spaces as a, as a young person. Given all your since accumulated knowledge and decades of experience, do you have one sentence that you'd like to define architecture in? What, what do you think architecture <laughs> is about for you? So I've been thinking through this topic. I mean, this has been central to my work for 20 years and I had a breakthrough on Tuesday. Oh, good so timing. This, I- is, <laughs> this is good timing, yeah. So. I think that um, for me, there's a very clear distinction between what I term the old school type of architecture and what I now am calling new architecture or architecture 2.0. And that was the breakthrough that I came up with on Tuesday. So I think, and, and, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions in the public too about what an architect is. And I think that those things are reinforced by awards and magazines, because, you know, if you look at those sort of formal programs and the way that architects collectively present themselves, 
you could come away from looking at that kind of material and think, oh, architects produce houses for rich people. And there, we have stats to say that 3 to 5% of housing in Australia is designed by architects, which means that, you know, 95 to 97% of housing is not designed by architects. And so if we think about architecture as being this fairly rarefied, um, sophisticated, high-end, can be luxury, not always, but, you know, can be um, high-budget um, endeavour that people with, you know, means or a certain level of um, financial success can indulge in. And we think about those people as being like patrons of the arts or of architecture. You know, they can commission an architect and they can say, yes, have free reign, here's my site, you know, come up with something beautiful and they don't have a lot of input into the the whole process and they come back and they say, oh, thank you for this marvellous, you know, object in the landscape that you've designed for me. That is what I would call old school architecture. And I'm not saying that we need to leave that behind entirely. There's still a place for that, but it's a very small proportion of the total market, if you like, the three to 5%. And it means that most people are very unlikely to experience all the benefits of good design and le even less to be able to afford them in their own homes. And so I've always been very determined to find and amplify stories of architecture for the 97%. And so my Churchill Fellowship was about sustainable and affordable housing. And essentially I was really looking at the types of architecture projects that are for people on low incomes or living in social housing or key workers that were living in subsidised housing in some of the most expensive cities in the world, like they all fell within a remit of what I was researching. Um, and I wanted to do that to try and understand what the mechanisms were that made those things possible so that we could try and bring them into the private market so that the 97% could have some of those good design attributes in their houses. And so that was, I was doing that in 2003, so 20 years ago. Since then, of course, climate emergency has become a major problem and challenge for society and particularly for architects because buildings account for 40% of global carbon emissions. And one of the reasons that we're in this predicament now where we're, you know, working very quickly to try and arrest climate emergency and also to create strategies to mitigate and adapt and become resilient in the face of climate emergency is that our buildings have been profligate with the way that they have used resources and materials, you know, in their size, in their use of um, energy. And so to me, that's a design failing because we can live well and comfortably with smaller lower footprint, lower carbon housing, if it's well designed. And so if everybody had access to good design and architecture, we could rein in some of our consumption and we could still live perhaps not as comfortably as we do now. We may have to make some sacrifices and compromises, but I feel like there is so much that we can do in a design sense to combat climate emergency and I'd like to see architects playing a greater role in the shape of our buildings and our cities 
so that we can make those low carbon um, transitions. Absolutely. And dignified, safe, affordable and beautiful housing. That's for everyone. That should be for everyone. Absolutely. And beauty is yes. a human right. So yes. I, I love yes. this idea or I guess many have been fighting for this for a long time, but you're a particularly eloquent ad- advocate in this space, Rachel, the idea of architecture 2.0. Yeah, I feel like I feel like that's a way that we can say we respect and we honour all of the traditions that have, you know, preceded where we are now and we look at where we are in the world and the challenges that we're facing and architects have this incredible skill set to problem solve and be creative and now we're going to apply that knowledge and those experiences to this situation so that everybody can benefit. And I really deeply feel that, what we need to do to come to terms with climate emergency and so that everybody gets the benefit of these good design outcomes is we need to make good design universal, like you just said. And we need to, I mean, to me, it's an equity issue. If we're going to be living in a climate where global temperature rises are, you know, two and a half um, degrees or more by the end of this century, and we know that some people will be able to inure themselves from those shocks by, you know, building fortresses or having better air conditioning or whatever it is, we think about the people who are going to be left behind, the people who are most vulnerable in that changing climate. It's the majority of people. And so I see good design now as an equity issue when we're dealing with climate emergency. So the game has changed since about 2018 when the world really started committing to um, you know, carbon emissions reductions. Hopefully we're going to see some good um, commitments come out of COP28, although early uh, early indications are that it could be a bit shaky. But, you know, we as a community and as a society, I think it's beholden on all of us to ensure that no one gets left behind in this challenging situation we face ourselves in. And good design has a role to play. I'm not saying it's the only thing. It's certainly not, you know, the single fix, but there is a way to reduce energy use and consumption through good design and we should be taking advantage of that. Oh, yeah. I'm a massive believer in the power of actual real built architecture and I firmly believe that the act of building buildings will be relevant for as long as people need somewhere to live and schools to learn in and hospitals to seek medical care and pass away in. For as long as that's we are people, we will need a roof over our heads. So, I don't ever really buy into this crisis of relevance. I'm always much more interested in where can we add that value? Where can we add that good design that you're talking about and make buildings and homes and life more livable for people and maximise the opportunity they have because that infinite growth and infinite expansion is not going to be possible forever. I wonder, the Robin Boyd's small home service is an interesting example of, of in the 20th century when he offered a limited number of floor plans that he designed for sale. Once they were sold, that's it. That house was cut off and they would go move to the next one. Do you think something like that has potential um, to help diversify the offering of good design? 
Yeah, I think that's a great um, a great way that architects can c- contribute to several problems that we're facing as a society now. You know, we've got climate emergency. We've also got a housing crisis. We've got a densification problem. You know, there's all sorts of um, jumbled and tangled threads that are making these into wicked problems. You know, governments are really struggling to come up with um, ways to tackle, you know, a set of circumstances that have arisen out of COVID and climate emergency and, you know, seem to have come out of nowhere. I mean, they haven't because in 2003 I was concerned about the state of the housing market and now it's gotten, you know, to a point where it's really critical that governments step in and act. Um, I think, yes, there is a role for architects to play in this space and we're seeing a few examples of that. So in in Victoria you have these new um, three-storey apartment buildings that have come out of a competition that the Office of the Victorian Government Architect ran, the Future Homes Competition, a couple of years ago. So anyone, any developer who wants to build a three-storey multi-residential apartment complex can get those plans for free and I'm not sure whether you could actually build from them or whether they're a starting point but that's one example. There are several architects that I'm aware of around Australia who have plans for sale on their websites and they range in price from you know about $5,000 up to $30,000 depending on I suppose the client's budget and and what they're looking for. Um, I have a client who's an architect here in WA who um is very focused on sustainable and affordable housing for young families like his family. So he's 35 and he's married and he has two children and seemed to be priced out of the local housing market and couldn't find anything that suited his um, wishes, I guess, around sustainability. And so he's built a house for his family and off the back of that, he's come up with uh, new house plans, they're called, and he sells them on the website. And so... That's a, that's a way that architects are inserting themselves into parts of the housing market, the 97%, if you like, where they haven't for a long time since Robin Boyd had any impact at scale. And so, yes, I'm very excited by the fact that architects are now starting to dip their toe back into those waters because architects have made great contributions in that space in the past. And for whatever reason, you know, policy decisions and market forces, there's been about 50 years of very little input from architects and now the pendulum seems to be swinging back which is great. I think most people would know how few buildings including large large construction multi-story construction how few is designed by architects and even less how much is delivered through full services. Yes and I think that that's that's been one of the things that has um there's a whole set of constraints, if you like, that have stopped architects from innovating. And I think that if we look at other industries and the types of disruptions that have happened through the emergence of technology, you know, things like Uber, things like Amazon, you know, what they've done to travel and uh, retail, as an example, um, we haven't seen that level of disruption across the construction industry and within architecture more particularly. And there's a whole heap of reasons for that. One is that um, the dispersal of the market in Australia means that prefab solutions which you know can be more easily adopted in countries that are smaller like the UK is very hard to get them off the ground in Australia because of distance and population and density. Um, Architecture and construction are traditionally very conservative industries. We can see that by the um, gender representation that 
is starting mm-hmm. to change. I mean, architecture is getting towards parity around men and women, and and even getting some um, non-gender, sorry, some non-binary people and other genders into the profession. But construction is still very male dominated, and that's a symbol, I think, of the fact that those professions are slow to uh, think about change and to adopt change and to seek to change and transition towards, you know, some of the opportunities that are arising now with technology. And so in recent discussions with people, I've come to understand that there's a lot of constraints, if you like, that is holding architects back. So there's insurance concerns about, um, you know, your practice, um, professional indemnity insurance and, and insurers saying you can't be too innovative with new materials because that will void your insurance. There's issues around um, your registration and whether or not it's encouraged or you're supported to offer partial services as opposed to full services. And that stops architects from being innovative in the way they package up new products and services that might come to market around climate change. Um, There's also concerns around um, the way that architects are taught. And so I've been talking a bit lately about the fact that in the National Standards of Competency for Architects, which is the overarching document that um, determines what's taught both both in university and for registration and in CPD, there's no business development and marketing in there. And that means that architects don't necessarily have an entrepreneurial streak and they don't look at challenges coming out of climate change and think, oh, there's an opportunity for me there because they just haven't been immersed and trained to think about how to offer their services in new and different ways. And so that's actually the challenge of Architecture 2.0. We've got a lot of practices who are moving down the path of offering new types of services to new audiences and expanding and growing architecture's reach and impact. But we don't currently have the mechanisms to tell those stories and we don't have a clear pathway to be able to tell the public oh, we've got this new offering happening over here and you might be interested in it because it's going to meet some of your needs. And architects haven't traditionally been very good at promoting themselves or marketing. And so even the ones who are doing excellent work in the main haven't made those links back into the public to be able to explain what they're doing and what's new and different about it. What and is, so that's where someone like I can come along and, and say, let's amplify all these incredible stories what are some of the new and exciting things happening in architecture right now? And you were recently at the national conference as well, so it's probably really yeah, great time to so get your low down. I think um, I've always had a very keen eye for what's happening with Breathe and Nightingale out of Victoria. And I remember when Jeremy McLeod first unveiled that as an open source platform that he was inviting architects to take the IP that they developed on that first project, the Commons, and to use it and apply it in sites across Australia. And so we've seen a few Nightingale projects in other parts of Victoria. I think there's one in South Australia. One has just finished here in WA. I know they've had a lot of trouble getting one off the ground in New South Wales because land prices are too high to be able to support the model. But that's a that's a a new way of delivering architecture, if you like, that I think it's probably about coming up to 10 years old now and it's absolutely changed the game 
in terms of what people now think about when they think medium density inner city apartment dwellings. You know, I remember when they were doing one of the early buildings, they, they were having all sorts of um, fights with council about the car parking ratios. And now that they've built the village, there's an understanding that you don't need as much car parking because you've got such great public transport at the doorstep. And so they've changed the game and they've redefined what good design in apartments in the inner city might look like. So that's a pretty good example. And at the National Awards, which happened in Canberra alongside the conference, the Nightingale Village scooped the pool. And it was interesting, both Jeremy McLeod, the founder of that, and Claire Cousins, who's one of the architects on the village, they spoke as they accepted the award. And I've seen Jeremy talk about this in other places as well. I know when they started, they set out with this really gung-ho attitude of we're going to get rid of developers because they're creaming off the profits and, you know, they're squashing the good design. And and they've since come to understand the very critical role that developers play and the risk that they take on and that they are necessarily necessarily in the um, project mix. And there's a newfound respect for developers and what they do and, and the contribution that they make. And I think that that's been useful as well to to go through that process of eschewing or um, turning their backs on a system that they thought wasn't working and to throw everything in the air and try something new and then to say, oh, okay, well, we learned a few things and now we've got new insights and knowledge to apply as we go forward. And I don't know whether you read or whether listeners read, um, Naomi Stead wrote an incredible article, a review of the Nightingale Village Um, for the Saturday paper probably six weeks ago and it was an absolute masterclass in how to do medium density well-designed apartments and for any architect who hasn't cracked that nut yet that article basically spells out everything they learned all the obstacles they came up against it's just a brilliant piece of writing and I'm really gratified to see these kinds of developments coming through you know against great odds like Jeremy has talked in the past about the initial cost that they incurred to get this model off the ground the battles they've had to fight with the banks and council and buyers and you know like it's just been a gargantuan effort and I think the fact they won those awards showed that that effort was worth it. And it was being recognised and really an antithesis to and in opposition to that idea that it's all fancy houses for fancy people. Yes. And we're recognising more and more projects that are more accessible to people, that someone can go and buy an apartment in the Nightingale building and live in an amazing Nightingale village community. Actually, that project quite often comes up on this program. We keep coming Does back to it because it's actually shaped and changed the market demand in those suburbs. And other apartments, non-Nightingale, do not sell as well. So the economics have been driven and changed for the better. I was really heartened to see that SJB house in Sydney on the 30, 35 square, tiny little square, metre footprint, split levels across five storeys. Not only is it devastatingly beautiful, I was drooling over the pictures both online and in print. It's just magnificent. But front page of Architecture Australia cleaned up the awards, like recognition is coming to those important projects and great yes. examples. And I, I think it's it's worth saying about that, that that project hasn't um, come out of nowhere. You know, that's got a very deep genesis and it's built on a lot of research and thinking. 
Adam did a Churchill Fellowship too, and that's actually how I met him and how we became friends is someone connected us when he won his Churchill Fellowship, which I think was in about 2008. And so he put together a research um, project to go around the world looking at density solutions. And he, he went to Colombia, he went to Spain, I think, he went to about six different cities and he was really looking into different ways that density and apartments were being delivered in places where market conditions were very different from Australia and then bringing back, you know, that knowledge and those insights. And I think that we can draw a direct line from his research and his interests through, you know, a lot of SJB projects, through his original apartment, which was a rooftop um, dwelling on a former tractor factory in Cleveland Street. And the genesis of this latest project, which you said was on 30 square metres in Surrey Hills, they realised, he and his husband Mike, that they were living in 20% of their house 80% of the time. So they had two bedrooms and an extra bathroom and living spaces that they barely even used. And that was the tipping point for him to say, okay, let's think about how we might address this and do something different. And, of course, you know, architects are very inventive when it comes to their own houses and their own projects and they can be very experimental. And I think it's, as you said, it's so exciting to see that project. I mean, I read the other day that the thing Adam loves most about it apart from the fact that it's won all these awards, including at WAF last last week, it got the World Interiors Festival Award, um, you know, really putting Sydney on the map. The thing he likes most about it is that when he comes home every day, his husband says to him, I absolutely love living in this house. You know, so it brings them such joy to occupy this beautifully designed space that isn't any more than they need and is right in the thick of all of the amenity that they love um, and it's changed their lives in that they don't need a car anymore and they can walk everywhere and their friends are nearby. And I've known Adam for a long time. And at one point he and Mike left an apartment in Surrey Hills to move to Maroubra. <laughs> and we all went, um, are you sure? <laughs> so it's interesting to trace their journey, you know, and to see what they've now arrived at as being what's enough for them. I love that story. It's it's such a perfect example of the value that good design brings and the joy that it brings and the utility. And it's not about crunching your square metres and having rooms and rooms and space and space and cupboards. It's actually using it super efficiently and really intelligently. And so many yeah, smart that, designs. That's the solutions. beauty of good design, isn't it? Good design solves multiple problems in what looks like a single stroke, you know, and it looks elegant. But I think a lot of the um, you know, the general population don't, because they don't understand the complexity or all of the things that have been considered and resolved and the constraints that have informed a good design, they can't necessarily see the the benefits of it or the advantages or the, the beauty in it because they can't appreciate the depth of the layers that have been worked through by the architect. And, and that's one of the things that architects are so good at is you know, dealing with incredible complexity and distilling it down to something that looks simple and beautiful and like it should have always been there. And exceeds expectations. That's yes, really absolutely. that other marker of success for me, that that value add if you're, you know, not even blowing it beyond the initial brief. Yes, and, and, and a lot of clients, because I talk to a lot of clients, as a writer, I've written about, I, I mean, I can't even tell you how many houses and um, owners I've interviewed over the years. I've been doing it for 22 years, so it's hundreds. 
one of the things that people say to me most often is, we had no idea it would be this good. And and that's interesting because clients in the main can't read plans mm. and they can't visualise different volumes and they can't conceptualise spaces from drawings on a page to the actual thing. And so I say to architects, you know, at what point did your clients start to understand what they were getting? And sometimes the architect will say, well, it was when the slab was poured and they could walk on it on the ground and, and, you know, see where the rooms were in relation to each other in the garden. But then a lot of clients say to me, it wasn't until it was finished that we had any sense of, you know, the architect told us that there were high ceilings in the lounge room and that we'd love looking out to the sky, but we didn't understand what that meant. And I had someone tell me last week, this is a couple who um, have built a really out-of-the-box house near Tamworth and that is not a hotbed of contemporary architecture. Um, <laughs> that, and they only did it because they have a brother-in-law who's an architect. They'd never met an architect before, never been into an architect-designed house. And so he steered them down a path where they've got this beautiful home that's completely different to everything else on the new estate where they live, so much so that people drive past, stop, come and knock on the door and say, what is this? Can we have a look inside? And they just won an award as well um, at the New South Wales Country Awards. It's called the um, the Dashend House and it's by um, Maxwell and Page Architects. So the clients who, you know, made a complete leap of faith by trusting their brother-in-law to produce them a house for the same price as all the project homes in the neighbourhood. Um, That's a feat. They said to me, yeah, it's massive. Um the um, the wife, whose name's Eliza, she had done a short course in sustainable design from the University of Tasmania because she was interested and she wanted to be an informed client, but she hadn't had any um, first-hand experience of these types of spaces. So she said to me, we had no idea what a passively designed house, a solar passive designed house would be like to live in. And so in the first winter, when it was minus two outside and we were walking around in shorts and T-shirts because the sun had warmed our house, we were like, oh, my God, what is this? And I think that that's a really neat example of how good design can have an incredibly impactful, you know, process on the way you live and the way you move through space and the way you interact with your family and how you entertain and, you know, all sorts of things. And really the message isn't getting out in great enough um, numbers to people to be able for them to be able to make different choices. That's an incredible and story. That, and I think that Nightingale is great because it's shown that market, that inner north um, up apartment market, that you can have something different. You do deserve to live in beautifully designed spaces. And this is this should be available to everybody. That are well built and good quality. Yes. With barely yeah, any we, operational expenditure. Yeah, we, we've been led by the market to believe that we only deserve what's on offer. But actually we all deserve to live in better designed spaces and places. What do you say to people who think architects' fees are too expensive or unaffordable for them? So that's where Architecture 2.0 comes into play as well. 
Because if you're operating a traditional architecture practice where you charge anywhere between, let's call it 8 and 12% for a house and you're um, factoring the cost on the build, you know, the total project cost, you probably are too expensive. But if you're an architect who's selling plans on your website for $5,000, then that's the counter, isn't it? That's the antithesis to the too expensive argument. And so there there is a market for good design at every level. There's a market for, you know, 120 square metre houses that cost, let's say, three to $4,000 a square metre to build. And there's a market for 600 square metre houses that cost $8,000 per square metre to build. There's a, there's, the market is a continuum. And so I would say to architects, if clients are telling you that your services are too expensive and they are the clients that you want to serve, what can you do to reconfigure the way you offer architecture in a way that's palatable and accessible to that type of client? And I think one of the things that architects tend to do, which is a sort of failing in marketing, if you like, is I think they have to be all things to all comers. You know, if, if someone walks through the door and says, I want to build a new house in Turak and I've got a budget of $10 million, they can take that on. And conversely, if someone walks in and says, I'm building a new house on an estate in Melton and I've got $400,000, what can you do for me? That they sort of go, oh, well, I want to be able to do that as well. It's unlikely that you're going to be able to do both of those things well because you're going to develop a skill set in a particular area and the detailing and, you know, the experience and the relationships that you have with builders and all of those things. And so architects are very reluctant to pick a specialisation. But I think in this modern marketing environment we find ourselves in, that's the way all industries are going is that people who specialise or have a niche and can speak clearly to their target audience, they're the ones that flourish. And so if you're prepared to say, you know, I'm an architect and I build houses in Melbourne's inner north and I mainly do renovations and alts and ads and I'm interested in retrofitting and energy upgrades, you know, you can build a pretty consistent stream of clients who come to you specifically for those things because you've got expertise. So if you want to be an old school architect and you want to accept every type of job that walks through the door, by all means do that. You may find that that stream of clients dries up because there are less and less of those types of clients. But there are going to be more and more of the types of clients who are putting up their hands and saying, actually, I've realised my house doesn't perform very well and energy prices are going through the roof and my backyard is south facing and I, what can I do about that? We know that there are 8 million homes in Australia that are going to need retrofitting for climate emergency, whether that's for energy efficiency or um, other types of resiliency or adaptation upgrades. So the architects who are at the forefront of that movement to retrofit 8 million homes, they've got work ahead of them for the next 30 years. They're never going to have a dry pipeline. Mm, That's a really, really interesting point as well. And important to mark that the upfront costs before you even get a product or can even come close to imagining what your house is like of the fees become a barrier for people. Absolutely. And it's hard for them to 
because they haven't extracted that value, right? But eleven dollars yes. and well, thirty cents. Well, they don't cents. understand it yet. Yes. Well, as the research shows us, the value of architecture or the return on your investment for every dollar spent on architectural fees, you get eleven dollars and thirty cents back in capital growth uh, and that capital investment. But you have to build the house to get that value back. Yes, and I think you make a good point there. I think the, the way that architects package their services currently, where they say oh, yes, I can come up with a concept for you and then we can refine that into a plan that we can submit to council so that you can get your DA and then we need to document it so that we can give the drawings to the builder. And the client's going, well, how much is this all going to cost me? And the architect says, well, it's about $40,000 all up and they're going, (gasps) because that's money that they have to pay for out of their pocket. No bank is lending until there's a DA. So that's a lot of money that a client needs to be able to come up with in order to make that initial investment to talk to an architect. And that means that a lot of clients just are not in a position to be able to do that. And that's one of the reasons why selling plans on your website for $5,000 is fantastic because it's a low-cost, low-risk way for someone to take those plans to a builder and to get a DA. So their soft costs, their finance costs before they can actually start on site and unlock bank finance are much lower, but they're still getting the very well-designed architect outcome. So if architects can think about how they can package up their services differently and perhaps break down those um, phases into bite-sized chunks that a client can just pay, you know, a small amount to get started and and to explore and see what the options are, And then if they like it, they can proceed to the next phase or they might just take those ideas to another provider if they want to work with a building designer or a draftsperson or go to a project home, you know, builder. But they might have set the parameters about, you know, getting the living room facing north and and getting the size and the dimensions right with an architect. Now, there are people doing that kind of work now. So Sarah Hobday-North, I don't know if you've come across her, she's – um. She's launched a new architecture service called Architecture GP and she offers customers the ability to have a very targeted bite-sized chunk of design work done at the beginning of a project so that they can throw, you know, spitballs in the air and say, what are the possibilities here and what are the opportunities and how am I going to get the best out of this site and, you know, these are my family's needs and, and how can I do that in the building? And she's very happy to have a great impact at that point of the uh, project to set the parameters so that they're heading off in the right direction. And then if the client chooses a different course or a different provider to go and fulfil the thing, Sarah's like, great, good for them. They're on the right track and I've done my job. And so I think architects have been very precious about, you know, holding on to full service and, um you know, having construction and contract admin and and being involved right the way through. But if we start to think about being able to have an impact at scale, which might mean that you offer different types of services so that more people can access them, architects can unlock more of the market by doing that. Almost become more of a referential profession. Yeah, and I think that, you know, we know that architects are great at problem solving and dealing with all of that complexity. And if we take the view that architects are the only people that can work with existing buildings and do that retrofitting, they're going to be able to establish themselves as the experts because a project manager can't come in and take over. 
because the minute they find something in the wall that they weren't expecting, they have to go back to the architect. Absolutely. That that existing condition and all the problems that come with un- the unknown unknowns and yes. existing buildings and every surprise you find around every corner and where that contingency gets spent, not if but when it gets spent. Yes. They, these are all the reasons why you want an architect in your court, even in Sarah's brilliant um, business model of the architect GP because clients spend a couple of hundred dollars up front meeting with her and she saves them hundreds of thousands down the line. Yes. That's a very yeah. direct and, return And investment. that's an even more compelling argument than the $11.30 yeah. return, you know, on your – like if you can save $30,000 or $100,000 up front by getting your house sited the right way, you know, you're way ahead. Or just just to know, yes, you can renovate this one. This yes, you don't need to knock it down. You can save thousands here and thousands there. Or perhaps the advice is inverse. Actually, it's probably about to go. Probably has termites. Really high risk. Maybe just knock it over and build something smaller instead of your six hundred square square meter mansion. Maybe yes. let's halve that and get it back into your budget. Yeah, absolutely, because architects are so good at being able to help clients work out what it is they want and need and how to do that in the least house possible. So I love that term, least house possible. That's from POD Architects in Cairns. That's their sort of um, practice philosophy, if you like, and it's just so clever to be able to meet all of the um, important parts of the brief with the absolute least amount of building because we're trying to save on resources and heating and cooling costs and you know, cleaning and looking after. Like we said about Adam, that they were using 20% of their apartment 80% of the time. Well, what can we do then to not build as much in the first place? And really utilise space better because if people, say, go for a spec home because that's in the market range they can afford and they end up with three bedrooms too many or an extra bedroom too many, that's square meterage they've already paid for to build that came at a price they don't need at all. Absolutely. Yeah. And and think about the impact of that on their mortgage. You know, that's a 30-year debt they're carrying for space and construction that may not have been required in the first place. And then their kids move out and it only gets worse and they're carrying even more dead square meters, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's where there's a great opportunity, isn't there, for architects like other architects, that's the name of the practice, other architects in Sydney, they came up with a scheme about 10 years ago where they started subdividing McMansions for multi-generational living. And I'm sure that that's something that's going to come to the fore in the future as we're starting to think about retrofitting and climate emergency and all these issues around young people are struggling to get into the housing market. If you're, you know, people, I'm in my 50s, if you're my age and you've got a house where there's two occupants but you've got four bedrooms, why wouldn't you think about, carving it up into different um, units or livable spaces for other people to be able to occupy. Absolutely. And then you can stay in your neighbourhood and your community Yes, that for some has been a home for many generations and they That's don't want right. to have to leave but who can afford to wear the, the cost of such, such a property sometimes, Yeah, especially when people might be even inheriting properties that have mul- multiple uh, interest or multiple uh, investment partners involved as well. Mm. Yes. So I really am a big fan of The Drill, your your weekly newsletter that goes out every every Friday 
summarizing all the hot topics, everything happening state by state and then nationally and internationally in architecture. What has been some of the hot topics this week? What's, what's been coming up? What's been really on the radar for you? I think I think COP28, which is the climate conference of world leaders that's happening in Dubai, it started, I think, on last Thursday or Friday. And so that we had a little bit of commentary about it in last week's issue and there'll be quite a lot more this week. Um, so the, the president of COP28, who is a man from Dubai, came out recently and said that he didn't see a scientific basis to reduce fossil fuels which of course has caused all sorts of consternation because that is the whole premise of the carbon reduction strategy that the world has signed up to. Um, and, and I think if, if you are calling into question that commitment, then all of the um, targets that countries have set are up for grabs because if we're not talking about phasing out fossil fuels, who's going to invest in the renewables that we need to take over? And so that's a massive um, issue recently. I've also been seeing um, quite a bit of commentary coming out of New South Wales this week, which will be in this Friday's issue about the um, the Labor government's latest plan, which was inadvertently leaked onto a website and then quickly pulled down on Monday to rezone land around stations as a way of increasing density and doing transit-oriented development in New South Wales as a way to get more affordable housing into the um, pipeline. And so they're a bit late to the party there. Nothing. That's not new at all. New South Wales is always five to 10 years behind Victoria. And like, I can say that because I grew up in Melbourne and I've always known that Melbourne's more progressive around (laughs) these things. But if you look at policy, like by and large, Victoria is leading the way on a lot of these issues, like the get off the gas campaign came out of Victoria you know, there's all sorts of things happening in your home state that um, are filtering slowly through to other states. So, yeah, that's a big thing for architects because it's going to unlock new opportunities for medium density developments and apartments um, in existing suburbs. And of course, because of the legislation requirements in New South Wales, most of that work is done by architects over a certain, I think it's over three stories. Um, so that's been a big thing. So, yeah, that, those are a couple of things that spring to mind um, this week. Oh, I wanted to t- say one more thing about something that I saw Kirsten Thompson say um, this week. So your listeners may be aware that she is the, um, the gold medalist this year um, and she's interviewed in a story in InDesign this week and she was talking about sustainability and I want to read her quote because I think it's really important she's been at um the world architecture festival in singapore and this article is a sort of roundup summary of themes that have come out of that event which was last week that's where adams um waterloo street won the world interiors award kirsten says i do think we are forced to reckon with some of the lag in our industry and she's talking about sustainability frankly we're just not doing enough for us to deal with climate catastrophe and it's good to be reminded of that And I feel like it's also good to be reminded of that because it's something that I'm constantly bringing up and talking about in the drill. Um, And it's a hard thing for architects to implement because in a lot of cases they're at the mercy of their clients. So there's a lot of education that needs to go on about informing clients about why these things are important Um, and then, you know, encouraging them to take the action to get And similarly, a lot of fear. 
I, I find that a lot of people don't want to push back on their clients because they rely on that recurring work, especially recurring institutional work. But yes. eventually we're going to get a point, to a point where if we stand for nothing, we'll fall for anything. I'm, yes. I am mindful I of the time. Though, Rachel, this, I want to ask. Comes back to, this comes back to architecture 2.0. I just want to quickly say we need new products and services for this new world that we're operating in. We can't continue to do business as usual because that's not the environment we're in anymore. No, in no way, in, in both procurement and economically and in climate, of course, as you've mentioned tonight. I really want to ask my last question and that's <laughs> what gives you hope? Um, architects are incredible creative problem solvers and thinkers and they can deal with and work through and design from immense complexity and so if any profession has the ability to navigate these challenges, it's architects. And I think if we can collectively put together a plan and a roadmap to contend with these really difficult issues and move together in a concerted way, and I said in my talk last week, it's going to be a series of small and incremental changes by a lot of people moving in the same direction that gets us to where we want to go. We're not going to wake up one, one night and find the whole professional society transformed. We all need to play a part. And architects are creative problem solvers and they can do this. Definitely. One bite at a time. Well, thank you so much Absolutely. for joining me on the program tonight, Rachel, and thank you for your advocacy and your effort and everything you do for our profession and for your the drill, which is a free newsletter. So listeners subscribe and it's completely accessible to everyone, both the, the, the public and students and professionals. So sign up to the drill and, and have a read of what's happening in architecture this week. Thanks so much, Rachel. Thanks so much, Alana. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonnarong Country. You can replay this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Hey, I'm Jane Oakley, a Matilda alumni footballer, number 36, and you're listening to Radio Karim. Stay tuned.